0: back to the School Science Radio. My name is Gino Ganello. Joining me today again, Chris and Adam from Royal Blue Mersey. And guys, not much going on this week as it's an international break, but we still have some talking points to go over, some things that are lingering going into, uh, you know, the the following week, this following weekend's games, and just some things that really need to be discussed. So uh, let's get right into it. And I think the biggest thing is, injuries and that we've talked a little bit about it on our on the last podcast um but still um it was a, it was an issue uh at the beginning of the season seemed to clear itself up but now it seems like it's growing again as we knew about the gomes and Sigurdson injuries but now lookman picking up an injury that we we don't know what it is just know we got sent home from the england youth camp uh today or uh, not today uh but uh recently and um now it looks like the list is building up again. We don't know how severe, but it looks like Gilfie uh, might be the most severe out of all of them. But how does Everton mitigate this issue, and uh who do we look to step up with these players out if they are going to miss time? And Chris, let's uh start with you on this one.
1: Yeah, so the first thing that I do want to mention is that the, this – and like you said, we don't know a lot about Adam Lillikman's injury, but it kind of sucks, right, because he was just getting really up and running, and Silva has pretty much made him the first substitution off the bench the last several weeks, and now he's he's got this new problem, and who knows where it goes from here. Hopefully he's okay. But the the Guilfi sickerson one is the one that concerns me the most because I think Andre Gomez can be adequately replaced by Morgan Schneiderlin don't really have anyone who can step into Gilfey's shoes. Um, As I mentioned on the last episode, I think it may be worth a consideration to move to a 4-4-2 where Gilfey's spot in the lineup is just removed and we can kind of take advantage of having a lot of strikers. In terms of players who can step up and kind of bear that creative burden, I'm looking at a guy like Bernard um, possibly who's creative and, and clever with his feet. I don't want to see him play in the middle, but if you're looking to to kind of build up the chances, um, he's somebody that I would be interested in seeing an increased level of production from.
2: Yeah, and it's the, uh, the timing of the Lookman injury, like you have said, is is really unfortunate because I think uh, with Gilfie out, you, you would probably have said before Lookman went down that maybe he was one of the guys that you'd really uh, be looking to at times to fill that creative burden because we've we've seen you know, what he's capable of again this season. Um, I completely agree with Chris. I think if Gilfie is out, there really isn't another option, but to go 4-4-2 because there's just no one else who can, can fill that that position um, at the tip of the midfield in a 4-3-3. Uh, Kieran Dowell has, has had chances to, to be that guy off and on this season and has not been very good and the fact that he's not even a guy who's making the bench in Premier League games tells you uh definitely what Silva thinks about him so i think that that 442 is going to be the way to go ideally uh the the midfield two can be uh Ghana and Gomish if Gomish can't go then i i think uh, it really then comes down to do you prefer Tom Davies or um Morgan Schneiderlin. I think if you're losing that creative force of, um, of Gilfie, I think I'd probably lean Schneiderlin as I think Chris would as well, just because he's a guy who's going to complete more passes, even if they are often of the sideways or backwards variety that he can at least give you a little bit more in terms of range of passing. And then it really just becomes the question of which of the three Strikers, if you will. Uh, You want to start in the two up top. And if Richarlison's not among them, then does he play on the left? And you'd think it has to be Walcott on the right now with Lookman potentially being out. But those are going to be, I think, the the big questions if all three of those guys can't play uh, this coming weekend
1: yeah I agree with that and and there is I suppose an argument that some people would make that you could slot Tom Davis into Gilfie's spot. I would not personally make that argument, but um that is another option. you're going to lose a lot of the creativity and against Cardiff, I don't think there's any point in playing a more defensive player in that spot, which is why I lean four four two but davies in theory is is another quote, i and I'm doing air quotes here solution
2: well and the the interesting thing about the idea of putting Tom uh, at at the tip of the, that midfield triangle. I, I wouldn't do it against Cardiff where I know um, I'm, I'm going to need creativity more than a ball winner. But the idea of using him uh, in front of Ghana and Andre or, yeah, or Ghana and Morgan, depending on who's available, um, against Liverpool is a little bit more interesting because you're putting a guy who's going to be able to win you the ball a little bit higher up the field. Um, Maybe that's a, a tactic that you use to try to force a couple of turnovers during the Liverpool buildup to try to spring something on the break. Um, But yeah, against Cardiff, that's, uh that's a, not even an, an option. It's not even on my radar because you know, Cardiff's going to sit deep and you're going to need somebody that can help get you goals, not just win you the ball back and then,
0: probably pass it away yeah and, and these issues um I mean Sigurdsson obviously the biggest issue but like you guys mentioned Lookman also um you know starting to really find his groove here and it's more of a one of those situations that's it's difficult to see just because the player is playing so well um and really making a uh, a name for himself in the squad and and doing well under Marco Silva and really making a name for himself with the manager but for the Sigurdsson uh, thing specifically, I, I think this tells us a lot about how the manager, this uh, time out for Sigurdsson, would tell us a lot about how the manager feels about uh, Kieran Dowell. And we've talked about this already today. But I, I just think that if he isn't in the starting 11, as we all believe he shouldn't be, um, really tells you where he's at and how, um, you know, kind of low in the totem pole he has become for Marco Silva and really creates questions as to what's next for him, Um and then it could be completely different if he is in the starting 11. We'll have to see how that one plays out, but certainly something to look out for as we move forward this week. Again, not as important this week to have guilty, more important for the Derby in, in two weeks, but um still a serious situation that we have to keep an eye on. But moving now to another story that's, you know, popped up on the radar, and one that's certainly worrying for us Everton fans who uh, have come to love seeing Jordan Pickford in, bet- uh, in between the posts there. David De Gea is not close to signing a new contract to Manchester United. Manchester United have expressed interest in in Pickford. Um Let's start out with Pickford and Everton first, and Adam, we'll go to you. Aside from the obvious, you know, we don't want him going anywhere because he clearly is a very important part to this team. How valuable is Pickford to Everton? Uh, very, very valuable. Uh, goalies are
2: such a weird commodity, um, because y- you've only got the one, uh, the one who you know is going to be playing week in and, and week out. And once you've solidified that, it really just takes so much stress off of everything else that you do because you know you've got a guy who's going to anchor your team, who's going to keep your defenders in line, and who's who's going to make you big saves that keep you in games. Uh, and when you lose that, and you know we certainly saw this before Pickford came in, whether it was toward the end of Tim Howard's career and he was splitting with Joel Robles, or it was Robles and uh, and Martin Stecklenberg. It's it's very easy to see how everything can kind of deteriorate at the back when you don't have that guy who's in charge, who's in command of what the team is doing, and who who makes the big save when, when you need them. And not only do we now have that guy, the fact that United immediately, as, as this De Gea contract situation has been developing, is now immediately coming out, and looking for a guy in their league who has proven to be that guy tells you how important it is because it's almost immediately gone into panic mode for United if they lose to Haya.
1: I think that we can kind of illustrate how important Pickford is to Everton just by rewatching the last game that the club played, right? Because Pickford made us several just. Utterly ridiculous stops against Chelsea, as he is known to do. And while I did appreciate and was encouraged by Marco Silva's game plan, Everton still probably don't get a, a point out of that match if Pickford's not standing on his head.
2: Yeah, and and that's you. You. It's hard to put a price on that, which is exactly what Manchester United is going to try to do if this develops into a you know your typical transfer saga.
0: And you said it, it, it is hard to put a price on that, but if, because you know they are going to come after them and there's going to be rumors whether, uh, how, how strong they are, we will not know. What kind of price would you guys sell or feel comfortable selling Pickford for, uh, if it comes to that?
1: Well, I, it's going to start with three digits. Um, then maybe you guys can check me here if I'm a if I'm off but uh considering he's under contract until 2024 I believe and considering his age and his status in the national team and his performances at the world cup and his performances for Everton and his provenness in the premier league you can uh don't even pick up the phone and dial my number if you're not starting with three digits
2: yeah and just to you know put it in uh in context the uh what did what did Chelsea pay for for Keppa? It uh, was that it was seventy seventy one million pounds, was it for Keppa? That's what I'm seeing.
1: Yeah, and it's uh, something similar for Alisson at Liverpool. Yeah.
2: So yeah. you know, and I think I, I think that Pickford had, been,
1: at, had played in the Premier League before.
2: Yeah, Pickford at, at this stage is, I think, pretty obviously a more proven goalkeeper then either Kepa or or Allison were uh at, at the points where where those clubs you know paid for those guys both have been good since coming to the Premier League in their defense I'm not you know putting those guys down at all but Pickford has played at this level so you would expect it to to be more than that and I think for me it's it's hard to even start to to put a price on it because like I said, keepers are just a different beast. And for it to be something that's worthwhile for Everton to do, you'd have to suspect that they could go out and find a keeper that they value, that, that they think is almost as good as Jordan Pickford, which is not an easy thing to do. Think that he is someone that that club will part with that they can actually, you know, pay a fee and and get him to come in. And you'd still probably want to have some other money left over from that transaction to make your team better. Because if you're basically, you know, adding in a goalie that's as good as the one that you have or even not quite as good, you're going to need to to have some other benefit in another area to make that worth your while. And, you know, (laughs) as we said – the 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 price for goalkeepers, the market for goalkeepers, kind of exploded this off season with those, you know, with the move for for Kepa at at Chelsea. So I think Chris is probably right that it probably has to be three digits if you think that you're going to be able to get someone close to as good and still be able to make your team better in some other aspect. It, it
1: it's a lot like the Lukaku situation, right, where you're selling a player who. His equal, and you know, in the generic term, we don't have to name any names or anything, but a player as good as Pickford is not going to come to Everton in the current state of things. And so that adds a lot of value to Everton's asking price. And on the Manchester United side of things, I think there's a lot of commercial value there for them and the idea of acquiring the number one English goalkeeper.
2: Yeah. And, and I think, I think that that your point about Lukaku is is a good one. And again, it illustrates the difference between an outfield player and a keeper. When we sold Lukaku, now obviously Lukaku was always going to be sold at the time that, that we sold him. And I don't think that that's the case with Pickford at this point. But when we sold Lukaku, we could say to ourselves, you know, yeah, maybe we can't get another striker as good as Lukaku. But if we can get a striker who's three quarters as good as Lukaku and another winger... Uh, and a ten who are also quite good, the three of those players together can help to get us more goals than Lukaku got us. It don't work that way with keepers uh you We can obviously you know talk about adding another center back or a defensive midfielder or what have you um to reduce the number of chances ideally coming in at at whatever the new goalkeeper was uh But at the end of the day, when somebody on the other team takes a shot, that's the only guy you've got keeping the ball out of the net. So you've got to blow me away if you're United to make this worth my while.
0: Yeah, and I think you guys make a good point in terms of value, and and I I agree with the three digits. I think that, you know, obviously price tags are speculated and, and people complain about price tags, say they're too high, too low all over the place, but I think the most important thing when you put a price on a player is their value to the club, and I think that Jordan Pickford at least carries a three-digit uh, value to Everton and the way he's performed this year, the way he's performed uh, since he's been here in general, and just the type of player he's become in the past few years, and I think that's why uh, we all would agree that that three digits is at least the starting point uh, for uh for for Pickford, if clubs are going to get him after him specifically united and finally, before we move on from the Pickford thing, you know just a general thing from either Chris or Adam, both you guys want to uh just comment on this. do we think that Pickford eventually moves to a bigger club, or is there a way that we'll be able to keep him and, and just keep him on our side so? Go ahead, Chris. Take it. So,
1: I was originally when I was working on the outline for this episode, thinking that my answer to this question would be yes, just because of you know the how the Premier League operates these days and and that kind of thing. But looking a little bit closer, I think I want to change it to I'm not sure because Manchester City are set at goalkeeper for a long time. Ederson is is fairly young and obviously also very good. Um, Chelsea are not going to move on from Kepa for a long time, considering the price that they paid for him. Same thing with Liverpool and Alisson. I don't think that Spurs can, Hugo Lloris is obviously getting older and getting just flat bad, but I don't think that Spurs can afford Jordan Pickford, frankly. And so that just leaves the one team, which kind of adds an interesting recall to it, that Everton can play hardball and Jordan may not even want to go to that mess in Manchester right now. So there's just not a lot of options because you don't really see him going abroad, especially given that Real Madrid have gotten Thibaut Courtois, Barcelona are set with Ter Stegen and that kind of thing. So I would not be surprised if Jordan was here for for a long time.
2: Yeah, and I think that you've hit on two, two additional important things about this in that. And one is that United, again, even if United gets its shit together, for lack of a better term, and decided to put out the money for this guy you know I don't know if that's a place that he would want to go and I think that the assumption that right now, given the state of United and the state of everything that goes on with jose the the idea that you know January would roll around and the board at United would be comfortable putting out this much money for a goalkeeper that their current manager wants if jose's still even there in january there's just so many variables at United right now that it's hard for me to even see the the club getting together and saying, okay, yep, this is what we want to do. We want to offer, you know, 90 million pounds for Jordan Pickford or whatever uh, the number is. And then to to get back more to your original question, Gino, about you know, do I think he moves to a bigger club? I think uh, I was going to say something, you know, quite similar to to what Chris said that. The number of bigger clubs out there that are in definite need of a goalie is, is pretty limited. And I don't necessarily, as much as Chris, I think, feel that him going abroad would be um, that shocking. But again, it, it, you figure that, that Barcelona, Real Madrid, uh, Bayern has Manuel Neuer. Again, who you don't suspect that they're looking to to replace right away. Um, Juventus has Mattia Perrin as kind of the heir apparent there. You run out of big clubs who need a goalie pretty quickly because they're big clubs. They've already spent for the goalie that they want because they're big clubs and they've got the money and the clout to do that. So uh, because of the nature of goalkeeping, much as we've just seen with United, when those Windows open up where you go, oh, crap, you know, I'm a big club and I need a goalie. When it happens, they're willing to, you know, pay whatever. And it's a big thing when that moment comes across. But they don't happen that often because the big clubs that are well run <laughs> uh, don't find themselves in the situation that United might soon find itself in.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that another thing uh with this whole Pickford um Rumor and whatnot. You know, Everton is moving in the right direction. And if we can, you know, I think, I think we're not too far off from competing, uh, with some of these bigger clubs, which could also be another factor that keeps picked for here, especially in, in, uh, reference to, uh, regarding United in the situation where you guys both said, um, and I agree that, you know, United isn't exactly right now a desirable place. Uh, for many people due to the situations that they have at manager and how they've looked and how they've really performed over the course of the year. So I'm not really sure about this one. I'm not sure whether he moves to the big club. I think you're, I think you're both right in the sense that there's not many, it's really either United or, or Everton at this point in terms of bigger, of big clubs. And, um, I think that because of that, we probably have a better chance of keeping him and then the price tag on top of that. I think, I think together, um, he probably, uh, will end up staying uh, on our side, and, which is a I, great I th- thing here.
2: I think that there's one other thing that we should probably just keep in mind. As, as Everton fans, you know, we watched him every week last year, and we got a really good, good sense of how good he is. Um, but let's not forget that if you go back six months even, and there were serious questions about him being the England number one going into the World Cup, so the idea that he is to everyone out there um, a bar none number one goalkeeper at one of the biggest clubs in the world, I think is is an assumption that you can't necessarily make, given that you know he played what five six games at the World Cup, and obviously that changed a lot of opinions abroad and outside of the Everton community. But I don't suspect that some of that. Hesitance about his ability has just <laughs> disappeared overnight. Despite the fact that we liked him a lot before the World Cup, and we liked him a lot at the start of the season,
0: and we still like him a lot now. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely agree with that. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, as of right now, I think we're probably in a good, sitting in a good spot, but we'll see. You know, things change daily uh, in this world, especially <laughs> with the transfers and. It'll be interesting. Hopefully not so stressful situation with Pickford here. Uh, but finally, before we move into, um, some things upcoming, talk about some, something that just recently came about in VAR. It's something that a system that has been used at the World Cup and, and MLS and, and others places really coming to be here, uh, replay and, and the Premier League looks like they're set to bring it to, uh, the, uh, to Premier League games as soon as next season. Um, are we in favor of this? And Adam, we'll go to you first on this one. We in favor of this? What are the pros and cons to this? I mean, there were several Everton-related instances, and from our perspective, that really would have been helped um, if VAR had been used. There were, you know, situations that could have changed the the flow of games and whatnot uh, if VAR was in place. And Adam, I'm interested. Is this a good thing for the Premier League? Is this a good thing for Everton uh, and the Premier League clubs moving forward?
2: So there's two things that I think we need to say about VAR. And one is that I know that the concern that a lot of folks who have not watched a lot of games with VAR have um, is about the pace of play and about it slowing down, down the pace of play because uh, we're we're waiting for referees to take a look at, you know, every potential incident out there. Um, and at least my experience uh, watching MLS, and I watch a lot of MLS, uh, is that it is not something that frequently slows down the game. 95% of instances that are being checked by VAR, you don't even see in real time in the game. The incident happens and you think in the back of your head, oh, you know, the VAR may look at that. And the fifth official, as it were, the VAR official who's who's not, you know, on the field, who's off in a van somewhere, you know, watching everything on lots and lots of screens, takes a look at it and basically just tells the referee, while play is still going on, nope, you know, that play is fine, we looked at it, you don't need to worry about it. The only plays that stop for a long period are ones that might potentially get overturned. Um, so I personally don't have any issues about the pace of play. The second thing, um, is that, and Chris will tell you this because I tell him this at least once a week, VAR is only as good as the officials who operate it because at the end of the day, it is still the head referee's decision to potentially overturn something on video review. And if the referee is a dunce and doesn't know the rules or has a poor interpretation of the rules or is just stubborn and doesn't want to admit he was wrong, then you're still going to get calls wrong in VAR. And that's something we see a lot of in MLS that I hope in the Premier League will be less of the case because the system as it is in place is a good one and one that should get things right a lot more than it does wrong if referees are using it properly.
1: You mean you're not excited about Mike Dean with an extra way he can screw up a, a football match?
2: He can't be any worse than uh, – oh, oof. Uh, Kevin Salazar. Oh, man, I can't even think. I got so many MLS rep names in my head because I don't like any of them. I'll, I'll spare you. I'll spare you. But, yes, Mike Dean is one that maybe uh, I also am not necessarily looking forward can,
1: to. Can you imagine the the exuberance with which Mike Dean would make the VAR motion? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just
2: making that big box that's like three times the size of him, his arms are out like he's a cheerleader, yeah, I could see it
1: <laughs> yeah. i ultimately, I think this is a good thing. I think it's it's progress, and you know we've, as Gino mentioned, there have been plenty of instances this season where everton I think would have benefited from v a r you look at um the penalty that address gay conceded. Against Manchester United, especially, um, and the Pierre Emerick Aubameyang second goal for Arsenal, those two things probably would have been overturned if if VAR is being used correctly by the head referee. And I don't think that you know Richarlison or Phil Jagielka's red cards would have been would have been messed with, and the, and that's fine. But there there are points at play in the table here for Everton if this if this comes to pass and, you know, it, it will end up biting them as well. But on the whole, I, I, I don't really see how this could be a bad thing.
2: Yeah. And, and just for any, any listeners who are not totally familiar with the system and, and what gets reviewed, there are only four things that, um, that will be reviewed by VAR at, at, to see if things were right or wrong and that's goals. So if there was a foul in a buildup to a goal or someone was off sides, um, red cards. Penalties and cases of mistaken identity, like we had the case, uh, for, it uh, was, was it United or Liverpool? I don't remember a couple of years ago. Um, where the ref basically gives a red card or a yellow card to one player, but it was a different player that committed the foul. Uh, then the VAR would get in his, in his ear and basically say, you know, Hey, dumbass, that's not the guy that committed the foul. Those are the only four instances where VAR is used. Um, Anything else? it's still, if the ref gets it wrong, he gets it wrong.
0: Yeah, and I'm in agreement. I I liked VAR. I thought VAR was or has been better um, than a lot of people expected it to be. Uh, it's you know, it's not perfect, like you said. Not no replay system is perfect because it still, in the end, relies on the referee and him making the decision. But I think it allows us allows the game to be better. Uh, called and to be better refereed and to make sure that those calls aren't being missed um, like they have been whether it's for Everton or against Everton is is neither here nor there it's more about getting the calls right on on the field and if they need to be checked getting them checked so that you know teams aren't losing points based on decisions that were clearly and obviously not the right ones but we'll see how that plays out and we'll you know we'll see how things go with the Premier League. I I think that it'll probably be pretty good, but we'll have to wait and see. Um going now into the upcoming schedule of uh for Everton. There's, there's some, we got some pretty difficult games coming up, but uh, we got Cardiff this week which, you know, should be a walk. Um what can we expect to get out of these games? And we'll start with Cardiff Cardiff and then going into derby week. Adam, we'll go to you on this one because you did write a story about this. Uh, during the week, and all you guys want to check that out, um, Adam. If you can just, uh, you know, give them the what the article is called, so they can find that on the Royal Blue Mercy website. But what are we thinking of the Cardiff game, and then how that kind of helps us moving forward into Derby Week?
2: Yeah. So, um, so I took a, a look uh, in a, an article on the site, uh, looking ahead to Everton's remaining 2018 schedule. Um, and just kind of broke down all the games that are going to happen between now and, and January 1 as my, my endpoint Uh, and trying to figure out what can we reasonably hope that for Everton to, to come away with, uh, by the time we're, we're into 2019, uh, to start the, the period off. As you said, we've got Cardiff coming up this weekend at home and then, uh, Liverpool away the following week and two interesting matches because they are on complete opposite ends of the spectrum home against Cardiff is maybe one of the easiest matches you should have all year, at least on paper with, uh, with away to Liverpool is obviously one of the toughest. Um, there's not, there's not too much to say about the the Cardiff match because it's simply one that even without Gilfi without Andre, without, at Amola, you just have to come away with three points um, because Cardiff, credit to them, they've been better than I think a lot of people expected. But to have them come to Goodison Park, it's it's just the situation where you've got to find a way to break down their low block uh, and, and get a goal and not make any stupid mistakes that let them in easily. Uh, at Anfield, well... I have absolutely no optimism at Anfield Anfield whatsoever that we can get a a result there. Uh, I think that Liverpool team has a lot of talent, and we have not historically been good enough away from home to get a result there, but I would be happy to be proven wrong unless Chris maybe disagrees.
1: I don't have any additional optimism for you at Anfield. I do just yeah. want to present a couple of points for your consideration. Mm-hmm. And those are that for God knows why Jurgen Klopp has been playing Roberto Firmino as the number 10 and Jordan Shakiri as a central midfielder, which, uh, that seems wrong
2: to yeah, me a little bit. There's a good reason for that. It's because it's definitely wrong. <laughs> um. <laughs>
1: Sometimes I feel like these, uh, brand name coaches and managers, for lack of a better term, kind of outsmart themselves, and this feels like one of those times. Uh, you have a striker and a winger there, uh, my friend. That's, uh, it's not a central midfielder. Uh, Not to say that those two things are reason enough for Everton to be able to get a point, because I don't think that they are, but just angles that Marco Silva could look to exploit for.
2: Yeah, and, and I think that the, I would suspect, I cannot speak to the inner mechanisms of Jurgen Klopp's mind, and I'd prefer to stay out of there if I could. Thank you. Um, the issues that Liverpool have had uh over the last couple of years have been when teams have come out and said, we're not going to play out of the back. We're not going to let you press the ball away from us. We're going to sit deep and we're going to say, go ahead, try to break us down. Um, and I think that that's something that Marco Silva has, has shown a willingness to do. He showed that last week against Chelsea that, you know, we had our moments in, in possession and getting forward, but especially in the second half, you know, he said, we're going to sit deep. We're going to try to see if you can break us down. I think that's the right way to go at Liverpool. And I'm, I'm sure, uh, next week after the Cardiff match, we'll, we'll be talking more about that. The, the blueprint is there. But that blueprint hasn't changed for two years, and we haven't been able to to get a victory against Liverpool, even with that blueprint out there front and center. And I I don't see enough change in the level of talent at Everton to make me believe that we could go get a win at Anfield.
0: Yeah, I, I think, again, agree with the guys on Cardiff. I think that should be walked... Just got to take care of business there, get three points and, and get out of there. Liverpool always historically bad there. Um, as we are with all top six teams on the road. Uh, but Anfield's been a specifically tough place to play for us. Um, and it's going to be difficult to get out of there with any sort of result just because of how good this Liverpool team is. Um, and, and you know, obviously as Everton fans, it's hard for us to admit. Um, but they're no joke, and they, they, they have shown that um, time and time again this year uh, and, and how talented they can be. Um, hopefully, you know, if anything, uh, if, we, if if things are going in our favor, maybe we'll catch a break and, and something will go our way, and that would yield maybe a result there, but that's not normally how things work for Everton fans. So uh, <laughs> optimism is low for us here uh, going into that week, but – one more uh, game coming up that we have that is an important game and and an interesting game is, is the Spurs game. Uh, they've been, you know, a measuring stick for us in terms of how they could get, you know, how they cracked the top six and how we could do so, um, moving forward and, and really put ourselves in that, that spot. What kind of gap is between these two clubs now? Um, And you think that Everton can get a result at Goodison this time around? And Chris, we'll go to you on this one to start off.
1: So I don't think Spurs are very good this season, and that's largely of their own doing, what with the uh, transfer inactivity over the summer. But they do their their core of talent is still significantly better than Everton's with you know Jan Vertonghen and Toby Alderweireld at the back, Alley and Christian Eriksen in the midfield, Harry Kane up top. Uh, Lucas Moura has been excellent for them. Um, Son is also superb. Eric Lamella apparently had talent that I had never realized he had before, and <laughs> even Musa Sissoko has done a few things, which is just mind blowing. I don't, I don't think that Everton are particularly close to that. I think they could be. I, I like where where we're headed, but Mauricio Pochettino has built a program there that has seems sustainable to me as long as Daniel Levy gets out of his own way with not wanting to pay his players. That that being said, you know, as you mentioned, I do think that Spurs are an interesting model for breaking into the top six because you look at what they did with Gareth Bale and that's something that Everton wanted to try and replicate with Romelu Lukaku in terms of turning those funds into a handful of players rather than just spending big to replace the one player. Early returns on Everton summer last year, not very good, although they're, they're kind of getting better with every game that Michael Keane plays. Um, So, you know, I, if I had to if I had to guess, Spurs are not going to be the team to fall out of the top six to let Everton in. I think it'll be Arsenal, and Manchester United, but Spurs at Goodison Park, nevertheless, are a game to where I would be at least interested to see if we can get a result. I wouldn't be surprised if we did.
0: Well, and and Adam, before you jump in here, Chris, going to what you're saying about uh, you know R- Lukaku and and the bail funds and how we've. Um, Use the uh, Lukaku funds, you know, for Spurs, that was, it was a little bit like we had the, um, with the Lukaku situation where they bought some players with that bail money that were not very good. And they had to turn those players over for money and, and buy the players that they have now. So they eventually found it out, found, figured it out too. So I think it, it matches up a little bit, um, I, I, a little bit better in that situation. I think that, um, you know, they've, they had their problems too um yeah and that's
1: that's a but, uh, sorry that, that's a very fair rebuttal because you know uh, the big one for spurs is Christian Eriksson who you know maybe Jordan Pickford is our Christian Eriksson for to use a uh, ill-advised comparison but they did have their Vlad Churches purchases and um Nabil Bentaleb also I believe Paulinho so it wasn't all it wasn't all puppies and rainbows
2: yeah and and that's I think for so Spurs Spurs that summer that they sold Bale, bought Paulinho, Nasser Chodley, which LOL, uh Roberto Soldado <laughs> again, LOL. At at the end Capoue, Vlad Cheriches, Christian Eriksen and Eric Lamela. Um, you know, Lamela you would have up until I don't know, 8 weeks ago maybe, <laughs> have said that was, you know, an error of moderate to epic proportions. And you would have said that the (laughs) only guy that they really hit on that summer was, was Christian Erickson. Uh, And even if you count Lamella, uh, the idea uh, I, I, you are correct, Gino, in that there has been this narrative of Everton being able to emulate what uh, Tottenham did with the bail money compared uh, in, in with what Everton could do with the uh, Lukaku money. But the reality is that Tottenham got good because the next summer they spent a combined 9 million pounds on Eric Dyer and Dele Alley, and Harry Kane, who was an Academy kid turned into the best striker in England. Um And, you know, good on them for finding Eric Dyer and Delhi Alley, you know, for pennies and developing Harry Kane into a big talent but the idea that that Everton was going to be able to do what Spurs did is more akin to you know the Everton equivalent of what Spurs did would be you know Mason Holgate, Adamola Lookman and Dominic Calvert-Lewin all turning into the next big thing which uh, is
1: possible, uh, by the way, except for Mason Holgate. Just like, going to say
2: two of those three things are, and I'll let you figure out right. which one isn't. But that's not the <laughs> point. Um, by,
1: by, the, by the way, and I you reminded me of this just now, reading off that Spurs list. Funny joke. They could pretty they could uh, use Etienne Capou right now.
2: Yeah, well, and that's <laughs> oh, so. So now that we've we've talked about the past, yeah, let's talk about Spurs and 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 the present. Um, as Chris has rightly said, you know. Obviously, that Harry Kane fella, even in a down year, which he is most definitely in the middle of uh is still pretty good um the issue for Spurs is that uh the center of midfield is a gigantic black hole uh Musa Dembele woke up one morning and was old and creaky and is now bad, which I don't think anyone <laughs> was really ready for, but definitely happened um Eric Dyer is. OK. He's just um, not sure
1: if he's a center back or a midfielder. Is Eric's I, problem. I,
2: I think everyone who's ever watched Eric Dyer play should be sure that he is a center back. The problem is he plays on a team where he is the fourth best center back. And on the national team, which we'll talk about in a little bit, he's also probably the third or fourth best center back. So, yeah, it's his, not Eric
1: Dyer's fault that Toby Alderweireld and Jan Vertonghen are ridiculously good, and like, Robinson
2: Sanchez as well, and it's not his yeah, fault God. that Harry Maguire and John Stones are good center backs too. Um, but the the point with Tottenham uh is is this. Uh, if we're talking about them as a as a measuring stick just this season as a team that we want to if we're close to Tottenham in the table coming into the season, you know, we've probably done what we've wanted to, right? We're probably in contention for a top six spot, and we're at least finishing seventh. Um, And uh, that was ultimately when I went through in in the, the post that I did this week and, and kind of analyzed, okay, best case scenario, if we're able to do things like beat Tottenham at home and go to Anfield and, and get a draw, which are all possible results, but – Tough results. Uh, if we do all of that, then we are definitely in a situation where, come the end of the season, we're competing with Spurs and Arsenal and United for those fifth and sixth spots. Uh, and, and that's that's a that's progress. It even is if progress. We don't get there.
1: Yeah, and I and just to tack on to the end of your point about Spurs midfield, and, and as you alluded to, Moussa N'Diaye is washed. And Victor Wanyama got hurt. And the, the other problem, and I kind of talked a little bit about this with Adam privately earlier in the week. Harry Winks, not the Lord and Savior that Spurs fans would have, would lead you to believe. Uh, really not even close. Um, he's 22, 23 now and has not really developed at all. And I understand that he's, he's had some injury problems, but I'm not even sure that I would take Harry Winks over. This season's iteration of Tom Davis, and I think that's really hurt Pochettino and his planning, um, because I think that they wrongly perceived Winks to be this guy who could step in and fill Dembele's press resistant ball progressing role, and that just has not happened at all.
2: Yeah, and it's, and the, the thing about this top six race, which is, you know, the thing that, that we've wanted Everton to thrust itself into, uh, is that all of the all of the teams that are not man city liverpool and chelsea who i think are very obviously 1 2 and 3 in that order pretty solidly um is that that they have problems united arsenal and tottenham they're they all have different problems but they have problems that make them in any single match and over the long term gettable if this Everton team is performing at its absolute peak. Now, to be at its absolute peak, Gilfie Sigurdsson needs to be healthy. Andre Gomes needs to be healthy. And, you know, these—that that is pretty self-evident. Um, but I think that Everton is capable of having a go at those teams in the table. And I think that we will have a much better idea of how realistic that is when we get to January 1st, you know, right now we're still at the, I I don't know about any team yet because they've only played 12 games. By the time you've played 20 games, you are what your record says that you are. Uh, So I'm very excited to get into kind of the heart of the premier league season, which is really this period between the November uh, international break and the end of the Christmas period and see, uh, you know, is this an Everton team that can stack up to some of those teams over, over the long haul? Uh,
1: it's going to be good, man. Like, it, it, I'm tired of these international breaks that kind of interrupt the flow that Everton oh, get into. It's awful. You know, you're <laughs> looking at a team that plays an exciting style with more or less a healthy roster. This These upcoming, what, 9, 10 games is really going to tell us a lot about the future, I think, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting. And just to jump on Spurs, uh, for one last point, you know, the other thing about Spurs, they have had a slow start and haven't been really as good as they, um, have been in recent years have been dealing with some injuries though, along mm-hmm. with the whole state stadium issue that they had. Uh, so there's a lot of things that I think that are playing into that as well. And when fully healthy, I think they can still perform as one of the best. But like you said, Dembele not performing up to par is certainly hurting them, um, and there have been some other issues. Yeah, and uh, like Christian
2: Eriksen having a healthy Christian Erikson, I think healthy Christian Eriksen is maybe the most underrated player in the Premier League. Having a healthy Christian Eriksen, which is something that they've really not had all year, uh, kind of papers over a lot of the other cracks you've got deeper in midfield. Because you've got yeah. a guy like Erickson who can just friggin keep the ball and keep you moving forward, regardless of what's going on around him.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is, this could be a, a game we could get a result in, but it's certain, like you guys said, it's going to tell us a lot about this team over the next, um, few weeks, month, a month or so. So, uh, be interesting to see that, but you guys mentioned the international break, the last one for a while. Um, let's get into that a little bit before we, uh, wrap things up here. Talk about England and the English national team we had a a really good win today, a late comeback over Croatia, advancing to the UEFA Nations League uh, finals now. Um, you know, is this big uh, the start of big things or was the World Cup, I should say, the start of big things to come for this English national team? Can they compete to win the 2020 Euros? Um, are we seeing the best English national team we've seen in a while?
2: Well, let's, let's just, uh, let's start with the basics. Um, yes, I think this England team is very good and is capable of a lot. Um, but let's not take any lessons at all from anything that has happened in the Nations League because (laughs) the, the teams in League A, which is that, which are the top teams in Europe, uh, have really treated this as little more than, than a glorified series of friendlies. Um, and that's perfectly fair because they don't care about winning the Nations League. And the Nations League is one path by which you can qualify for Euros through a needlessly convoluted process that I won't even begin to go into here. Um, but these are all teams, all those top teams, England, Croatia and all, all that, that group, uh, are rightly quite confident that they can qualify for Euro through the standard method, uh, so that they didn't put a whole lot into the nation's league that said there are plenty of other really good results obviously from the world cup where you begin to think you look at this this group of england players and you look at guys like harry kane and raheem sterling and marcus rashford and now Jadon sancho getting into the mix there are a lot of really exciting entertaining and really young players for england that can do a lot of damage and that have now proven to do it both at the club level and at the international level. And that is something new and unusual. And it's a lot of fun to watch.
1: Yeah. I think that the biggest thing for this England team for me is that you kind of want to root for them, which is just a strange and a strange feeling compared to years past when they were, Bumbling about trying to fit Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard into the same midfield.
2: It's pretty from... hard to root for any team that has Steven Gerrard in it. I think his the, oh, yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> takeaway there. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't like the LA Galaxy when he was there either. You know, for what that's worth. <laughs> yeah, and you know,
1: I uh, actually well, I'm not going to try to force a slip joke into there. I just won't do it. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I might now.
2: I'm going to think about it. For you. go ahead.
1: <laughs> no, but uh, England is fun. Which is just really weird because they've not been fun for a long time. Uh, you know, I think about back to as a United States fan, the 2010 World Cup, I believe it was, where
2: Robert Clint, Green,
1: yeah, Clint Dempsey <laughs> just shot a beach ball past Robert Green, and you'd like, man, I don't want to watch this game. This is not this is not enjoyable. But I find myself now as as a neutral, flipping to the the channel that England are on just because I know I'm going to see something cool, which is. Which is a big change, and and it, it's not just that it's cool; it's more that it's become that cool and fun is effective now. And I think that there's big things ahead for them because this is a, an extremely young player pool now, and you're not having to to fit in any of this old guard. As a matter of respect to to anybody, there's there's nobody in the team who doesn't deserve their place.
2: Except for Wayne Rooney last week, but I don't want to get anyone triggered about that conversation. So <laughs> Don't at you know,
1: well, Adam on Twitter. Just yeah. don't
2: do it. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think that, that one of the, the questions that you asked, you know, which is an interesting one, is can this England team win Euro 2020? Um, And I, I'm hard-pressed to find a reason that they can't. Um, They obviously proved at the World Cup, you know, that, that they are a quality side. Um, they, as I said, I don't put a ton of stock in anything that's happened in the nation's league, but they played Spain twice and Croatia twice and came away with two wins and a draw out of those four. That's obviously very good. But I think even more generally than that, I I think that Europe right now as a whole is pretty wide open in terms of. Who the best teams out there are going to be? You obviously know that France is is the, the kingpin right now and is, is the team to beat. But when you look at a team like Germany, which was dreadful at the World Cup, a team like Italy, who didn't even make the World Cup, and and, and you look at some of those and Spain are a mess
1: too. Spain are
2: a mess. Netherlands, again, historically a powerhouse, didn't make the World Cup. Uh, and I think we've seen a little Roberto bit of a Roberto
1: Martinez back is coaching for,
2: Germany. <laughs> or coaching Belgium, yeah. Pardon me. <laughs> um, so I, I think that even aside from a- anything positive that we can say about England, and we can say a lot of positive things about England, I, I don't think that you can make the case at this point that there is any team that clearly has more talent than them, barring France. And, well – Anything can happen in one game where they to meet France in, in the Euros. And if we're being honest, that France team won the world cup. And I will die on this hill. France won the world cup playing at about 70% of what their capacity is because Didier Deschamps is basically just international Jose Mourinho. He's got all of this wonderful attacking talent and he plays Blaise Matuidi as his left winger. Um, (laughs) So France just like everybody else in in Europe right now is gettable and I think if you're an England fan that's got to be really exciting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and things are really looking up for England um you know moving forward like you guys have mentioned. I I think that this England team really uh during the World Cup brought a lot of attention to themselves by the way that they played and just the talent that they put out there and it, they, they've been very good and they're adding some new players. Like we've mentioned some, some youthful players that can keep that going for years to come, which is great for them. Um But, you know, we've talked about the euros and England's had some trouble getting trophy trophies in these big tournaments uh year after year, you know, tournament after tournament. What's the big thing England need to do to avoid another slip up in a chase for a trophy?
2: Uh, see, there's there's your slip see, uh, ah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> sitting on that one. <laughs>
1: um, I'm gonna keep this kind of simple. I think the biggest thing, if you want to narrow it down to one thing that could that could help uh, England get over the hump, they need to find slash develop an actual number eight.
2: And I, uh, yeah, go ahead.
1: It's not Ross Barkley. Um. <laughs> Because nobody knows what the hell he is It's not uh, Jordan Henderson Eric Dyer is Definitely not a number 8 Dele Alli and Jesse Lingard Despite their usage at the World Cup Also not number eights. England have spent Basically the entire time Since Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard retired from international duty Trying to find a player who Kind of fits that mold uh, To play in their midfield And they've not had any luck so far you know, it's kind of a shame, honestly. That James Milner has retired from international duty because you—he's the type of guy that that could fit there. But it's—it's it's the one big hole in their in their lineup for me.
2: I I would even uh, expand that a little bit and say that uh, the biggest obstacle between England and a trophy right now is just the midfield. Um, in in a little bit, we're going to talk about, you know, our our preferred 11s, our our best 11 for for England right now. And uh, when I was prepping before we started recording, I I wrote out, you know, here's my goalie, my back four and my front three, assuming that England play a 4-3-3. And it's all pretty straightforward. And then you get to the midfield and you go, oh, my God, I don't even know if there's one player that I would be willing to commit myself to. In a midfield three for England. Much less three. Um and not that there aren't players with talent, because obviously Jesse Lingard and Jordan Henderson and uh and Deli Alley are are all talented players. You you take
1: that back. Jordan Henderson doesn't have an ounce of talent in his body. He is uh, (laughs)
2: let's not do this here. I'm getting ready
1: for the match in a couple of weeks. I'm just getting in that right mindset.
2: Henderson has <laughs> his uses. How about that? Okay, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> um, and and you can say that about all of all of the the guys that they have in central midfield. That you know they're all useful players, but I I don't necessarily you know if I'm starting in if I have to pick my eleven for the final at Euro 2020. And my options are, you know, Jesse Lingard, Jordan Henderson, Eric Dyer, Deli Alley. Uh oh, because France is going to mop the floor with you in the midfield, running Ngolo Conte, Paul Pogba, and left winger slash left central midfielder Blaise Matweedy at, you know, a midfield three of, uh, you know, Hendo. Uh, what did they start today? Today, England started Ross Barkley, Eric Dyer, and Fabian Delph as its midfield three. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's, all three right. of those three, not three of good. players don't know what position they play.
1: Yeah, Literally. well, I mean,
2: let's, let's be fair to Fabian Delph, who is definitely a central midfielder, and Pep just does weird things to players. Fabian Delph, if he's playing for anyone but Pep Guardiola, is definitely a central midfielder. Let's, yeah, I think okay. that's probably I can, fair yeah, to I can say. That. But, so if, if you're going to ask me what their biggest issue is, is that they've got to figure out, you know, how they're going to find three players in the midfield that fit nicely between what I think is probably a pretty clear back four and a pretty clear front three, both of which have a lot of talent. Uh, but, but they're just one or two pieces in the midfield away from being able to really put that all together on a consistent basis,
0: I think. Yeah, it's, it's a problem. It's certainly a problem and, and, it's one that they're going to have to address moving forward. The midfield, like you said, uh, you know, the midfield, the uh, France's midfield just if you're trying to compete with top teams, um, and France being one of them, uh, it just is not a good matchup uh for England in that scenario. And they're gonna need to do some work with that to figure out um really who fits best where uh and and how to get the best out of this team moving forward. And that brings me to the final question here about England. Uh, and, Adam, you alluded to it before. What do we think England's best starting eleven is? And, Adam, we'll go to you on this one first.
2: So I, I think, uh, like I said, at the back and at the front, I think this is the easiest. I think Jordan Pickford's in goal. I think your front three is probably Sterling, Kane, and Marcus Rashford. Um, Jaden Sancho creates uh, an interesting conundrum on uh on the wing opposite sterling i think is he's a player that maybe by the time you know we get to euro 2020 maybe could could fit into there as well but all good options all you know players that you'd think yep i'm, I'm pretty happy with that going into a major international tournament uh any disagreement on those four players so far chris
1: no uh well a little bit but okay, i'm gonna
2: uh,
1: i'm uh I'm inclined to make a formation change here. Oh, so I'll let you I'll let you okay. finish out your lineup oh, before okay. I uh, okay. before I get super crazy.
2: Super crazy. Okay. Um I think the back four because I am not super crazy and I'm going to play a relatively straightforward 443. Um I think the back four is going to probably be Kyle Walker, John Stones, Harry Maguire. Left back is a little unclear to me right now. I probably edge it to Luke Shaw, but I could be especially by the time Games actually start mattering again. I could probably be talking to Ben Chilwell or Danny Rose, depending on what I'm going up against. Um, and then the midfield, oh God, the midfield. Um, mm-hmm. Gun to my head, um, I, I'm going to hedge my bets that Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain returns from injury as the same player he was before he got hurt. And I'm you gonna son of a gun, ah, uh, did I steal your thunder a little bit? yes, perfect <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh because i think I think that ox what he w- the way that he was playing at Liverpool under Jurgen Klopp before he got hurt, was beginning to border on maybe that fabled number eight that Chris was referring to that that could be the guy that that brings it all together um. For me, I play him as as the eight. I probably begrudgingly throw Jordan Henderson in as the the sixth to, to play a little bit deeper. And I probably go Jesse Lingard um as the most aggressive of that midfield three. I could pretty easily be convinced to replace Henderson with Dyer, uh, or Jesse Lingard with Deli Alley, or maybe even given some time, James Madison. Um but for right now that would be my group. So it would be Pickford, Walker, Stones, Maguire, Shaw, uh Oxlade Chamberlain, Henderson, Lingard, Sterling, Kane, and Rashford would be my eleven and a four three three.
1: Okay. So well, I don't think that I super disagree with anything that you've said there. I do want to mix it up a little bit. I want to go with a four three one two. Okay. And so I'm gonna have Almost the same back four as you I want Walker, Stones, Maguire And Ben Chilwell at my, as my left back With Jordan Pickford and goal In the midfield I want Eric Dyer at the base Because I think he's a lot better defensively Than Jordan Henderson is Ahead of Dyer I want to see Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain and Ruben Loftus-Cheek And At the ten I want to see Deli Alli And my two forwards will be Harry Kane And Raheem Sterling
2: oh, I just don't know how comfortable I am with a midfield that contains both Ruben Loftus Cheek and Delhi Ali. Be- I think that those guys, more than maybe any other, uh, define the classic English central midfield problem, which is that they don't know what they are. Because Delhi is not creatively really in a ten. I, I don't necessarily think that's where his skill set is best suited. I don't know – I don't think I've seen enough of Ruben Loftus-Cheek, and that's primarily because, you know, Chelsea is a just a terrible place to be if you're a youth player, um, and I, I just don't know if he – I don't know what he gives me, but I could be convinced if he was given regular time at club level, potentially to like that a lot more than I do right now. Uh,
1: Ruben Loftus-Cheek uh... – Was good enough at Crystal Palace last season to make them not a one-player club, which if you think about their last few years, that's pretty remarkable, right? He just – he has a – he brings – Loftus Sheik brings something, to me anyway, that most of the other midfielders in the England player pool do not, and he can progress the ball to those forwards and – yeah, he's athletic and he's physical and that kind of thing. But that's not the that's not his his best quality. He's he's a really clever passer of the ball, and you have Oxley Chamberlain who can run for days, and Dyer who can just sit deep and not really do anything besides kick people. Um, well, I, I
2: mean, why do anything but what you're good at?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Be yourself, ultimately, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I I do think that. The more interesting thing to me is not even in the midfield, it's up front, where you could go any number of configurations, because Lingard could play out wide, Marcus Rashford can play out wide, Sterling, while is, has traditionally been a wide player, can play through the middle pretty adequately, if you're asking me, and then there's Jadon Sancho, who probably deserves to be playing even more than he has been, so I don't really know how you configured that front three, maybe with the... You know, I have them in a two, but maybe with all the the personnel, I don't want to say issues, but just the 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 number of options there, you you could go to a three. It's a good problem to have, but it's yeah. also a problem.
2: And I, I think that for me, at the end of the day, uh, if I'm England, I'm not looking to put myself into a system where I've got to get another central midfielder on the field. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, no, know, I know that that's, that's their that that's you know their 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 weak point. And much as I say about teams that play back fives or back threes, I guess I should say, uh, because they don't have two good center backs, playing three center backs because you're no good in a back four because you don't have two good center backs does not make you better defensively. It just means you've put another bad player on the field, and that yes. would be that would be my fear in a midfield that has, you know, four central midfielders as England.
1: Yeah, so a a couple of things here before we wrap up, and we may be going a little bit long, but I think these are worth noting. Kieran Trippier, as good as he was at the World Cup, which was admittedly excellent, nowhere near this team. And for me, it's because he's not a good enough defender. Um, But Joe Gomez, who's gotten a lot of burn for Gareth Southgate since the World Cup, also nowhere near this team. He's not good. Yeah, he's just not good. I mean, it, I, I would like to see what I could do playing next to Virgil Van Dyke. I think that would be worth a shot.
2: He's also made Joel Matip and uh, Dehan Loveren look like competent defenders. Yeah. and uh, I mean, <laughs> Virgil we Van Dyke is we...
1: like two center backs at once. <laughs> but um, the the other thing here is the Michael Keane question. Just to kind of bring it back to Everton, he he's been really good lately, and I can t- I. I don't want to you know get ahead of myself but you can kind of see a world in which Michael Keane is from an objective perspective better at defending than John Stones easily and maybe even Harry Maguire as we kind of go down the road here I'm just not sure that he's able to to kind of get enough run in Southgate system to to make that next level but I I would be interested in seeing if he can get some more minutes
2: yeah, and I think that for me right now, uh, uh, when I'm looking at uh, at England's center back options, I think in Maguire and Stones, you, you've you've got two good good players, and you know I think that reasonable people can disagree about exactly how good, but th- those are two center backs that you're comfortable rolling with in in, in at the international level. Um, but I I think that if you made me pick my third England center back right now. It might be um, Michael Keane. You know, I'm, I'm, as we've discussed, I'm not entranced by Joe Gomez. Um, I, I don't think that Lewis Dunk is a particularly great defender. I think he's obviously done done well for himself at, at Brighton, but I, I don't look at that guy, no. I think. International-level yeah. center back.
1: The thing with um, Lewis Dunk is he's not young, and yeah. the Euros are two years from now. I, I don't think he's going to – Sniff the the squad. I think it's just kind of a an experiment, and
2: uh, and it's the same with James Tarkowski uh, at Burnley. It's the same with Alfie Mawson, uh, who's now at at Fulham, but was at Swansea Swansea yeah. previously. Again, good good players at the club level um, who uh, did well uh, in a system that sat ten guys behind the ball for most of the match. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with being that kind of player, but I don't think it translates to to playing uh, at the England international level. So I think Keane is is right there, uh, and the more that he plays with Everton and plays well, the more pressure he maybe puts on Harry Maguire, who, you know, as it stands, is currently forced to play next to Wes Morgan because apparently Claude Puel thinks that Wes Morgan can still play,
1: he can't. We saw that firsthand. <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: if I if I'm Johnny Evans, I'm wondering, man, what I got to do to get in the lineup ahead of Wes Morgan. But that's a discussion for a different
0: day. Yeah, and and just to go on the Keen thing um, as well, you know, I mean, you put Keen and and McGuire back there. That's a pretty decent aerial threat on set pieces. Uh, mm-hmm. Both of them pretty good at putting those in the back of the net, but. It'll be interesting to see how England play out as they get to these competitive games still a while before we see, um, anything meaningful, uh, for them that isn't, you know, quote unquote meaningful in the Nations League. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it'll be interesting to see how things play out for them. And guys, it's all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you for joining me once again this week and uh, talking a little bit about Everton and, you know, filling in the international break for those who, for all of us who don't have soccer, uh, going on this week, giving them, so giving everybody something to listen to. Uh, for you guys out there, thanks for listening again. Keep following us on Twitter. We'll talk to you guys next week.